What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. And today I have, well, I have an interview I'm very excited about, and that's one with Joe Walker, and we talk about Sicario. Now, if you haven't seen Sicario, go check it out. It's a great film. Now, before I get into everything with Joe Walker and everyone and tell you what's new with AOTG, I do want to send a thanks to our sponsors for this week, and that's Divergent Media. Without them, we wouldn't be able to keep the lights on without any of our sponsors on our site. So I want to just give you guys a heads up. They have a tool called Edit Ready, and it's a great tool designed to help transcode footage quickly and at extremely high quality. So one of the things is they are a very fast tool, as I mentioned. And so when you use it, it speeds up your workflow. And what I did when they came to me was they said, let's do a advertisement with you guys but they want to offer our listeners a 14-day trial because a lot of people will just simply say, well, we have Adobe Media Encoder or we have Apple's Compressor or we have Episode. They said, okay, let's put a a challenge out. Download this 14-day trial. It's completely full software. You have it for 14 days and compare the speeds and compare the quality. Then you can decide, do you want to buy it, $49.99, or do you want to just use it for this 14 days. I'd encourage you to check that out. It's a pretty good deal. It's at divergentmedia.com slash AOTG. That's divergentmedia.com slash AOTG. And if you try it, let us know what you think. Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash AOTG network. Go to our Twitter account, twitter.com slash AOTG network, and message us. Let us know what you thought of it. All right? With that said, on with the show. We're doing an interview today with Joe Walker. Joe Walker cut such films as 12 Years a Slave, Shame, and the one I'm really excited to talk to him about is the new film by Dene Villeneuve called Sicario. Dene is a a Canadian filmmaker. He did Enemy. He did Prisoner last year. He did On Sunday, which I highly recommend all those films. Two of my favorite are his work on Prisoner and On Sunday. But then I saw Sicario, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I absolutely loved the intricacies of the relationships in this film, the tenseness with which things happen or the way people interact with each other. It's just a really phenomenal, well-structured film. So I'd encourage everyone to go out and watch the film, particularly in the theater if you can, before listening to this podcast. Of course, if you're comfortable listening to the podcast without seeing the film, that's not a problem. Go ahead and listen to it. But it's a fantastic, fantastic film, and I'd highly recommend it. In the meantime, if you find anything post-production related, you can always submit it to AOTG.com. And of course, you can use our browser plugins at AOTG.com plugins. And of course, you can always socialize with us at AOTG.com discuss. Or on Twitter, Twitter.com slash AOTG network. Or on Facebook, Facebook.com slash AOTG network. But with all that said, it's time to get into Sicario with Joe Walker. Can you tell me first how you got involved with Sicario? I've been following Denis's name for a while. From um, The first film I saw that I really loved of his was Ensemble, and anybody who hasn't seen that, it's a real treat. I mean, incredibly epic, moving drama with lots of surprises and a very emotional film. And I saw that in London, and then just uh, in the run-up to the Oscars, I saw Prisoners and 
I was kind of gripped by that. And I had a conversation with my agent on the night of the Oscars, actually. But he was saying, who do you want to meet? Who do you want to talk to? And I said, can you get me in a room on Denny's next film? And um, I knew that he'd been working with a, an editor, and I, it was a, you know, who did a great job for him. I wasn't that hopeful, but we met and uh, liked each other. And I loved the script of Sicario. And, you know, we had a really good first conversation. And he's, you know, a big admirer of Steve McQueen's film. So it just seemed like a good fit. And, you know, uh, he offered me the job and I, I grabbed it. In all the research that I've done before this interview, everyone always talks about how meticulous a planner Denis is. I'm wondering how this affected you in the post-process. You know, I mean, it delivers the luxury of something that's going to work, you know, and it enables me to kind of concentrate on perfecting the kind of rhythm of it. But in a funny way, because I'm insanely competitive, I, <laughs> they would have these fantastic plans and I would try and subvert them by saying there is another way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm just, I'm afraid, I'm shamefully uh, sort of, you know, self-promoting it. But I think, you know, they had to prepare. You know, he is a fantastic, uh, meticulous planner. But he and Roger Deakins, the DP, together, they storyboarded very, very carefully. And I think they knew that because it was, I think, a 50-day shoot, which isn't a huge amount for a film with a lot of action and location changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the budget's high by some standards, but really for this film was not enough. And so they had to be meticulous. You know, they had to kind of only shoot what they needed. And... There was no spare, you know. So I would find that planning pays off in the editing. Obviously, you know, you end up cutting something that already ha has a plan and has a, a, you know, very deliberate. Each shot has got a place, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. very... I could read Roger's dailies very, very clearly. There was never any ambiguity about where a shot was intended. But, you know, on the other hand, there's always things that come up, you know, no film goes straight from the camera to the screen. You know, there's a... There's always a lot to do to kind of tweak, and it, I suppose it gave us the advantage of some weeks that might be spent trying to kind of totally retool things, but actually in this case it was just finessing. So a good example of that is, you know, the main story is Kate's, Emily Blunt's character. And as planned and as uh, shot, as scripted and shot, there was originally a scene of the Nietzsche's right at the beginning of the film, a little bit like um, classic Bond pre-title sequence that wasn't related to the story of Sicario, but basically it was you sort of encounter Alejandro and he's standing waist deep in the ocean. And this was, I've got to tell you, shot really beautifully in Vera Cruz. It's a really, really hard scene to have dropped. <laughs> but he's standing waist deep and then you slowly reveal that he's holding somebody's head under the water. And then he pulls the head out of the water and he carries on interrogating this guy. And the guy doesn't answer, so he puts his thrusts his head back down again and drowns him. By mistake, he drowns him. So he drags this lifeless body out, pulls it up to the shore, and then gives him CPR and the kiss of life and brings him around and then starts interrogating him again. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really extreme kind of entry into Alejandro's character, but... You know, there's things like that of saying when we saw it, it was for a long time trying to make it work in different places in the film. And eventually we had to jettison it. It just damaged the kind of equilibrium. And the equilibrium, as I saw it, was very firmly we had to anchor it as Kate's story, you know, mm -hmm. seen through her eyes right up until the end. And the only kind of 
counterpoint to that is the Silvio, the Mexican cop. Yeah. And as soon as we had three threads at the beginning, it damaged that equilibrium. It also meant that we knew something that Kate didn't know, and it felt very much better for Kate to always be catching up, playing catch up and trying to investigate these people. So when she meets Alejandro on the plane and he barely speaks to her, she's forming an opinion of him bit by bit, and we don't give all the information away at the beginning. So even with the most meticulous planning, there was still, thank God, something for me to do. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, and I don't know how to... Because, again, I when we were talking a bit earlier, I was saying that I saw the film, and usually I write my questions right away. But this time, I, I was just like, I need time. And one of my questions, I don't know if I'll, if this will come out right, so I apologize if it's a bit confusing, but the editing almost felt... not I want to say, like, minimalist or very straightforward like there wasn't anything flashy about it yeah what i'm wondering is we're approaching a dialogue scene and we have a back and forth for the shoulders with the the characters i'm wondering how there were so many scenes that were very subtle but the tension and the sort of tone in those scenes were extremely intense so how did you even though the footage came across as it as if it just came together really easily. How did you work with these shots to build such tense moments? I, that's a great question, and uh, quite a flattering one, thank you. I mean, there is one flashy cut, if you like, <laughs> which is there's a bit halfway through the film where I've got John Bernthal is dancing with Emily Blunt's character, and, and he lifts her up and then carries on lifting her in a different location. There's kind of quite a bit of a show-off cut there. <laughs> but... Um, no, I, I take your point. Really, I mean, I tried to cut a sequence with as few shots as possible. And it's not about being slow, actually. It's about maintaining tension over time. You know, it's about handling the tension. And sometimes it's a delicate balance. There's a very good scene with Emily and Benizio when she's sort of, uh, they've had a briefing in the briefing room and she's saying, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And he's very evasive. You know, there are some things I could play on her and you really see the intensity of her inquiry by hearing his lines off. You know, you know that he's kind of giving her the cold shoulder in a way, and you feel her reaction to that. And then there's other times where we hold on to him long and we sort of investigate his face as he doesn't give much away of, of how he shields himself. And then when he does turn to water, so all the management of that tension and, and the moment when their eyes actually touch, you know, it's kind of very... I mean, God, it's... Uh, a luxury to have such great performances, you know, and Benitia particularly is kind of, you know, he can hypnotize you like a cobra. So he's <laughs> paralyzed and unable to use your machinery in order to mm-hmm. cut anybody else, you know, before you met it. It's, uh, you could play a whole scene on him. No, it's just those sort of things of delicately balancing those things where you, you know, you hear a performance rather than see it and vice versa, and which choosing your moment very carefully when you switch from one to the other. And it's just been a bit of a discovery over, over the years. And I suppose I'm quite well known for this with, with Steve McQueen's, you know, style, which is sort of often holding long shots, you know, shots for a long time and keeping up an almost unbearable amount of tension. You know, I had a real discovery some years ago. There was, uh, I took a class in the university up in York in, in the north of England and there was um, a, a bunch of students and I thought rather than sort of standing and delivering a lecture, I thought I'll take up some dailies. And I asked Steve McQueen if I could take up um, his dailies from a sequence in Shame. And basically, it's a shot of Kerry Mulligan singing New York, New York, 
in a, a club on the top of a standard hotel in Manhattan and her brother listening to it and the brothers played by Michael Fassbender and basically they gave me only two shots I mean it's kind of criminal because Stephen and Sean Bobby the cameraman don't really do coverage you know <laughs> they just <laughs> they think it's right for a scene and they capture it in, in as few shots as they can but in this case it was kind of dangerous because you're halfway through a film and you stop to listen to a song but you know, there was a way of cutting it to kind of maintain that tension. And in my cut, I just did one cut to Michael. And it was just at a point where she seemed to be intently looking at him and saying, it's up to you, New York, New York. You know, and the yeah. sub was, I've messed up in all these cities and towns and all these relationships that's gone, that have gone wrong and I need to rely on you. And then his reaction is a kind of very sort of surprising one he drops a tear and just very very stirred you know there's a lot of backstory that's never really stated in that film and it's all done by those kind of deft touches you know and then I came back to her for the rest of the song so it was, that was my cut and anyway some of these students did such great work I mean we all sat and watched these 20 versions some people just edited the hell out of it and put five or six reaction shots and tried to match his looks to various phrases in the song and you know they were a pool of sweat at the end of the day trying to kind of you know, go backwards and forwards and by everybody's admission those were the most boring to watch the ones with the least tension it felt like you were pointlessly holding you know um, varying the visuals you know just pointlessly and sort of unattached to the content actually somebody did a really cool one which was that they did a cut uh, they did a version with no cut to michael so it's just <laughs> it's just one shot of gary singing yeah. and actually that was really fascinating i wish i'd thought of that you know so I don't know, it was a bit of a discovery that the event rate sometimes, if there's a sort of, if you don't cut, then there's almost an illusion that it's real life and there's nobody's hand coming to hold yours. And I find some television editing, you know, there's some very good television editing, as we all know, but some sometimes it's just too much for me. I find it uncomfortable being led through the story so heavily, you know, dragged along through uh, a story by the editor. And I'd rather sort of sit back and sort of hold things and let people get stuck in. Well, I wonder if for television it's because they have to fit into that time slot and meet their commercial breaks and what have you, if that's why they have to almost force you through it. Steve comes from a different background, you know. Of, of, in his case, he came up from 8mm art films and shooting his own stuff and he didn't have that much money and it was, you know, waste not, want not was he say to me and then he also has the same you know he sometimes has exactly the same sensibility there's a couple of times in Sicarid I can think of where we hold shots for quite a long time and you know the great advantage is that the film starts with such a lot of shocks you know there's a huge explosion of a shed you know somebody comes out of the door and a shed explodes and people's body parts going everywhere it's a big shock you know and then there's kind of shock cut to Kate in the shower you know high frequency sounds kind of kicking in and we know that the film delivers shocks and surprises so when you hold a long shot for example the one with the, all the soldiers going down the hill into the dark mm -hmm. we subconsciously know that something could come at you at any time in this film and it really makes that desperately tense and there's no music you know so the music is coming to an end there so it's it's sort of managing that tension sometimes those longer shots really do it there was another cut that i really liked and i don't think many people would have thought of it and that is and i don't know if this is because you had a similar situation where you didn't have much footage or if it was more of a choice from you and danae in the post process but that's they go through mexico for the first time and then we come back and Emily has an argument with Josh 
and it just sits in the wide mm. for the whole argument, and then we go inside. And I'm not sure if there was lots of footage and coverage, and you guys chose that. <laughs> in that case, I'd love to take credit for it, <laughs> but that's all they shot. I mean, I, the only thing I can say is that if they had shot closer stuff, I think I would have said, can we do it without cutting to the closer footage? <laughs> so I'm still trying to claim it as my own. (laughs) Insanely competitive, as I said. No, the truth is that Denny shot that and as soon as he saw the wide shot, I think he felt he'd got it. And he had. I mean, holding things for a longer period of time, like that shot where you see the whole argument in wide shot and it's Josh Brolin and Emily Blunt have sort of had just, they've just come through hell and Josh Brolin's group have merely caused a war on the border between Mexico and, and America. And, um, you know, it's been a very, very tense scene with a brutal shootout. And then they sort of race back. And I mean, I did my due diligence, which is to kind of compress time before you get there. So things kind of happening too fast when you leave Juarez. And then, you know, afterwards, the pace is up and so on. So it's kind of you telescope time and give yourself the luxury of being able to sit back and just observe and also it gives you the kind of wonderful irony of the American flag floating above this yeah. and the dust of the desert and a bit of the landscape. So there were kind of many good reasons to stay on it. And also the body language between Josh and Emily was seemed to kind of play very well in the wide. You know, she really loses it in that moment because she's not a soldier, she's a cop. So it just felt the right thing to do. They didn't shoot closer coverage, and they had time to, so it was kind of quite a bold decision on set, that one. But yes, I'm going to say that uh, Denny was very much influenced by the fact he'd hired me as his editor. (laughs) 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 No, I'd love to take credit for that, but they did it on set. Now, you've also got a background in music and composing, so I was wondering, with all that knowledge and experience, how did that affect your cutting process for this film, and did you get to use it at all in this film? I mean, I'm basically a composer that sort of went into the wrong door one day, you know. (laughs) I still feel what I do is a kind of musical thing, and, you know, a lot of it is to do with finding the kind of rhythm and building the layers of rhythm, uh, much in the same way as you would build, you know, a track. In this one, there was a real bold difference from the way that things are normally done in that I cut a lot of it mute. So the whole uh, raid on Juarez, I think I cut as a silent film. I just didn't want to be distracted by the sound effects and then I brought them in later once I was satisfied with the visual cut. So I literally turned the speakers off for a couple of days cutting that sequence and, and Denny really loves it when I just turn the mixer down and try and cut things without sound. And sometimes even dialogue scenes, when the big advantage on this film is that people are fairly taciturn. I mean... The nature barely says anything, so it's kind of very, it's kind of easy to cut his dialogue scenes without just looking at it and saying, does this film work without sound? You know, if it works without sound, then it's a very, very strong, in a strong place. And obviously, you allow time for sound effects and music, and then I'd start working a lot on the sound. But just initially trying to make it very visually rhythmic. With the other big difference was that I didn't put any tent tracks in. There was, you know, with action scenes, people nearly always cut to some kind of beat and, uh, you know, have a clutch of familiar temp tracks. And I'm really tired of it. I think it's really abusive in a way. Somebody, a friend of mine said that music is in an abusive relationship with film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and they keep going back for more because the money's good, you know, <laughs> you know, the fur coats are nice and this sort of stuff, but basically it's black eyes all round. And the reason why is because we put in temp tracks and it forces composers to kind of obey 
the patterns that we find. And that's sometimes a good thing, but doesn't always make original scores. Also, I think it's bad insofar as there are some scenes that are working more because of the propulsion of the music than of the propulsion of the story. And and if if you can make it work without music, even though that's tough to do, it's really tough not to, to say there's no atmosphere, but there's going to be. We have to trust our soundtrack coming later to sort of fill out those spaces. It's tough to do, but I think it's really rewarding. It means Sicario was on the treadmills of the cutting room, very hard, had full liposuction. There was no spare frame. Everything was to a purpose, and everything found its own internal rhythm, and we were very hard on the material indeed. You know, There was a lot of good stuff in Juarez, for example. We didn't keep repeating shots. We just tried to kind of make it rhythmically and visually exciting. You know. Did you have to have tracks for those sort of droning bass beats? The great thing was after about five weeks, I think, of the director's cut, we had no music on it, and we were just saying, okay, this is it's ready now to send it to Johan. And Johan Johansson had worked with Denny before on Prisoners, and they had a very good relationship. And Johan, we sent him the cut with nothing on it, you know, with no music on it, and just said, you know, fill your boots, do what you like. And we got these four demos back. I think it was four, and they were all awesome but there was one particular one which was that heavy distorted drum thing with the kind of lurching bass line and I think we danced around in the room when we heard that one because it, it just sort of sounded like the identity of the film you know it was kind of a harsh imperial march you know and it's just the right tempo and he wrote that against the shots of the helicopters that kind of float from El Paso over the barriers, over the wall, and then over to Juarez. There's a there's a sequence there. And he wrote the the piece of music. That was the first piece of music we had, and it was just very exciting. You know, coming from nowhere. You know that we sent him no preconceptions. We hadn't sent him. You know, had some track by Hans Zimmer and said, please ape this. It was just something straight from Johan's heart. It's always nerve-wracking when you get those sounds back for the first time. You know, you have to find the sound of the film, and I think that was just the thing of hearing a demo track where you go, that is the sound of the film. You know, it's, it's there's something, it just has some swagger and sarcasm, and, you know, it's quite dark, and it kind of hits you in the stomach, that piece. And I don't know, it just felt absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's really weird. I've heard that through the doors, you know, of lots of screening rooms and things, and it always makes my stomach churn a little bit. <laughs> now, one of the things that I, I noticed in this film is it seems that everything... It's always about what's just below the surface or what's not available at us upon first sight. So, like, my thought is, you know, when we get into the house in the very beginning, there's stuff behind the wall, like the bodies are behind the wall. Or we don't see Josh Brolin's sandals at first and then it pans down to them. But what what I'm wondering about the editing process for something like this is it's sort of like a a balance of information because you want to give, you know, in particular things like the, um, the bodies in the walls, you want to sort of allude to it, but you don't want to give away that sort of reveal. And I'm wondering how much work went into sort of choosing where to reveal things, such as the bodies, in the editing room? That's a good question. I mean, it was, you know, certainly in the case of the bodies, I think it was making sure that each of the steps was clear, but, you know, but still exciting. And that was a kind of delicate balance that really came down to the number of frames. You hold on to something. So, for example, when she comes through the door, the guy shoots at her, and we had to kind of... You know, get the timing of boom, bang, you know, on the wall so that you've got long enough to know that he's just blown a, you know, six inch dent in the wall. 
which we're going to come back to later, you know, and just slowly staggering it, and the characters see something before we do, and I don't know, it was just, it was really frame accurate, delicate sort of negotiation, that one. One of the things in the whole film that is a kind of editing exercise in a way is how much does Emily see and and we see her see and how much do things happen just by themselves. And that's kind of really delicate balance because if everything she sees, you know, is a three, you know, a, a shot of her looking, then a shot of what she sees, then a shot of her reacting to it. And, you know, if you're not careful, it could turn into Queen Mother driving through. <laughs> you know, so the pace would be too slow and she'd look like such a passenger. And so it was kind of very delicate balance that. And you, see, you know, the film is really strongly from her point of view until a certain point. And passive characters, things happening to her, you know, th- that isn't necessarily the most cinematically successful. You know, it's not commercial cinema's kind of normal hero. I mean, heroes change the world and, and change things, you know. Uh, uh, they don't sit and watch them necessarily. And that was, funnily enough, a similar sort of problem, if you like, to 12 Years a Slave, where, you know, Solomon, a lot of things happen to him and he's unable to respond to them. You know, he does, but we had to kind of very carefully manage that so that, you know, what you, you don't lose your patience with the central character and you just feel how things are for them without it being, you know, without you feeling like they should get up and shoot people. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, those things are really delicate balances that you sort of, you know, you have a little while to kind of work out. It's kind of fun of the game, really. Well, you had mentioned earlier that Benicio Del Toro's has very few lines of dialogue. And in my research, I found that, I guess, originally in, in the script, there was more lines of dialogue where he describes what he does. And that doesn't appear in the film. Was that removed in the editing process and like how did that decision come about i mean it's always a difficult thing to talk about because it does a great disservice to taylor sheridan who did a great great job of making this character mysterious but yes i mean it's fair to say that it kind of carried on during the shoot and i think benicio and and denny talked a lot and they pared down the script i know that there was a speech in Juarez in the car where he sort of pretty much explained his character and Vinicio put it, the fact that he's he's opening up to somebody he only met 12 hours earlier just didn't feel right. So we ended up sort of transported those lines to somebody else and Josh used those lines later in the film and it made a lot more sense for him to say them. So yes, we did clip a few things out in the edit, it's true to say. Did you purposefully differentiate the editing between Mexico and the US or... Was that just due to the fact that I felt that Mexico was more tighter in terms of like close-ups, and the U.S. was a little wider? Um, that might be true, actually. Yeah, we did. It was to do with the character and discovering that character of Silvio, and you know, Denny had that, that really beautiful shot that's sort of behind him as he sits up on bed and looks out the window, and there's some great tension when you're looking at the backs of heads, and that's a shot that Denny uses a lot. I mean, it partly works with an aesthetic that's almost like a first-person shooter aesthetic, you know, in the night vision sequence or something. Yeah. But it also, I think, just sometimes, like, there's a moment where Reggie, the character Reggie, goes out of the house with the bodies in the wall, and he goes out and he's just taking a breath and he feels sick from the smell of the bodies, and he comes out and you're just we just hover on the nape of his neck, and his his neck is in focus and everything else is out of focus and you just sort of feel it's a very vulnerable place in the body isn't it and 
dwell on that sort of slightly perverse thing of being on the back of somebody's head. I don't know where I'm going with this. I think there was sort of Mexico, it's probably closer because of the, the strength of those shots. We did have wider material. It was a fantastic sequence where he comes down the hill with his boy on the way to the football pitch and a bus collects them or drives past and, you know, they climbed up a hill and a motorbike goes past a bit too close. There was really nice stuff that we chopped. And we just sort of kept it intimate and like a little portrait of a family. Now, you're currently working with Danae again, now that you've started this new project. How would you say your experience on Sicario has helped your relationship evolve or become stronger for this next film? Well, I mean, it's it's very uh, relaxed, you know, in terms of the two of us together. It's like, you know, we trust each other very much and there's no... Uh, you know, it's it's a formula that's worked together very much and I enjoy his company enormously. So, yeah, I mean, with Steve McQueen and I did second and third films as well, you know, it's a kind of shorthand you end up having. And I don't know, it's always lovely to work with somebody a second time. I mean, you know, Sicario worked out beautifully, but it's a second time around, there's, you know, there's no, I don't know, there's no fear, you know? Yeah. Don't feel as though, I feel I'm in a secure position and, that sort of just brings the best out of everybody when they feel like that. I have one last question that I like to ask all the editors that I interview, and that's, uh, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? <laughs> um, oh, well, oh my God, I've got so many guilty pleasures. <laughs> that's, I, I've, I'm really fond of musicals, which is kind of, you know, it's just so, if you knew me really well, you'd say that was surprising. But, I mean, I found myself watching it and crying my eyes out to uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg in the past, which, <laughs> yeah, just sort of tells you. And, uh, no, it's the only the film that I see over and over again and I love to watch again and again is... Um, I love The Shining, and I love yeah. uh, uh, and I love Brazil. That's another film that I've watched so many times. Which, which version just, of Brazil? Um, well, I guess the director's cut. <laughs> as I get older, I wonder whether or not uh, it was worth the fuss not to just cut five minutes out of it and not have a big fight with the studio, you know, but each to their own, and I think that's part, of the, part and parcel of the kind of brilliance of Terry Gilliam is... is you know, it's a non-conformist and he's an artist and, you know. Yeah. But, uh, no, I can watch that. I mean, I'm not sure that's a guilty place because so many other people share it. But, yeah, mm. I say Umbrellas of Cherbourg, that's, that's, that's the one. I recommended that film to a director I worked with once and I said, oh, you've got to watch it. It's, you know, it'll just, you'll, you'll just love it. And he came back the next day and said, what? <laughs> you know, and he just looked at me askance for the rest of the edit that we had together. <laughs> I actually like that film, but anyway, wow. there you go. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you. My pleasure, my great pleasure. So that was my interview with Joe. What a great guy. He was just such a fun person to talk to. There was actually a lot cut out of that uh, for various reasons because I found myself just ending up talking to him. And we would end up talking about various things that kind of diverged from the film. So <laughs> I would like to thank Joe for sitting with me and discussing the film Sicario. Again, go check that out in the theaters if you haven't already. I'd like to thank, of course, Margaret for setting that interview up for us. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.